Thank you, Jacob. It's good to be with you guys today. Kurt Parker, and uh, what a joy it is to sing Christmas carols as the little ones are heading out. If you've got little ones, you'd like them to be in uh, children's church, you can let them dismiss with them, or you can just keep them with you. It's okay with us. It's a joy to be back together again to worship the, the Word. And I just want to mention something that Pastor Jay mentioned at the beginning, because it's important. So coming up next weekend, unless there's a weather delay, next weekend will be the weekend we do our Rustburg Christmas Outreach. We have three tents set up. We have three tent leaders. We're getting all the equipment and everything ready for you. Let me encourage you to be a part of that. If you've not done it before, this is a great opportunity for you to get used to engaging people with the gospel. So for the time of the Rustburg Christmas Parade, we'll have three kiosks. We'll hand out hot chocolate and candy canes and uh, uh, the, uh, the New Testament book of John from the Gideons and also tracts from uh, Berean. And we've handed out, we typically hand out eight to 900 tracts on a typical parade day. We've had um, on those tracks, there's a number in the back, and if you profess Christ as your Savior, you can scan a QR code. It'll take you straight to the Pocketistment League, and then you can, uh, in you doing that, it lets them know that you profess Christ. We've had over 1,300 of those responses to Pocketistment League over the years we've been doing this. So I love that. I love that you have a chance to engage people with the gospel. Most of the time, it'll be a hot cup of hot chocolate, a candy cane, a gospel of John, and a track, and, and uh, wish them a Merry Christmas. But from time to time, you get a chance to talk to them more. But it helps you break the ice and helps you feel better about engaging people in the name of, of Christ. And so, let me encourage you. If you're planning on doing that or you'd like to do that on the Brian Journey Facebook page, there is an event. Uh, go on there. Let us know you're coming so we can plan correctly. We want to make sure we divide the groups up. You won't have to know how to do anything. We'll tell you exactly where you need to park and where you need to walk and what to do when you're there. It's going to be a lot of fun. And the cold, we've always say the colder the better because all the more hot chocolate uh, they're going to want. And so we've had some years where it's been 75 on parade day. Not much demand for hot chocolate, but it looks like it's going to be cold and maybe a little rainy. And so let me encourage you to do that. If you've been on the kind of on the bubble about that, don't miss out. All right. That's one of the big events we have throughout the year. And you don't want to miss that. Okay. We train you to share the gospel. Now you get a chance to do it. For the rest of you, let's turn a copy of God's word to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're in a continuing study. If you've not been with us, uh, we go through verse by verse, book by book, through the Word of God. We're in First and Second Timothy and Titus. We've entitled this whole study, Instructions for the Church for Teaching, Leading, and Equipping. And, and really, that's based on First Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, where Paul writes in his letter to Timothy in the church aid, saying, if I, while I'm delayed, if I don't come to you, make sure you do these things because you are the pillar of and support of the truth, the church. There's things that are supposed to be done in the church, and Paul uh, let us know what they were. We're still in the church age, so they're still applicable for today. We've, we've moved into a section after a break last week where we had uh, Ben Shaw come and present the new uh, core apologetics ministry that he is a part of, where you can be a part of supporting him. Let me encourage you not to forget that as Ben is uh, very, very involved here, not a, not a stranger here to the pulpit. But we'd love for you to be involved with supporting him as he goes out and really does the thing that he's trained to do. But in this uh, section, we've come to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're in verse 3. And all the way through verse 16, we have some specific instructions here. And I think it'll be interesting to you, if you've not been with us, to read along with us. But we're going to pick up in verse 3 of 1 Timothy 5. Have your Bible open, uh, your tablet, whatever you use, your phone. Follow along with us. It'll be a blessing to you. Number, verse 3 picks up like this. Honor widows who are widows indeed. Verse 4, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. For this is acceptable in the sight of God. Verse 5, now she who is a widow indeed 
and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. Verse 6, but, if she, but she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Verse 7, prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. Verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Verse 9, a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old. Having been the wife of one man, verse 10, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted in those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. Verse 11, but refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desire in disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation, because they've set aside their previous pledge. Verse 13, at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. Verse 14, therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. Verse 15, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. If any woman, verse 16, who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. A section, perhaps, if that's the first time you've read it, you may think, why in the world is this in here and why is this important to us? If you've gone to an entertainment church most of your life, a church that's really interested in what the world thinks about them, uh, this may not even be on the radar for you. However, I can think we can see from the number of verses dedicated to it that it's important to the Lord. And not only is it by way of ministry to those specifically described here important to the Lord, but in the middle of all this teaching is so many life habits that need to be developed. And I think that you've seen that as we've begun our study to be able to see how much more applicable this is, broader than just the ministry that's prescribed here. And two weeks ago, we read through this section of Scripture for the first time. And it was easy for us to begin to identify things that God thinks are most important. And in these 14 verses, we got a glimpse of the heart of God concerning an important ministry of the church. And in it, we can see God's priorities concerning the care for women, and in particular, widows, that's women without a husband. And after looking through the Word of God, this isn't surprising. And we spent a lot of time in that first and second time in this section, really getting some background for us to understand what the ministry really is supposed to look like and why it's important. And we saw that women and children are precious in the sight of the Lord. In God's design, they are both to be the special object of care, and they always have His attention, and they have His provision, and particularly those who have lost their fathers and lost their husbands. And we saw very clearly from the Old Testament that God was very concerned about women and about the fatherless, and, and He calls them without someone to defend them. And we saw that He defends them, and that's a sobering and scary thought. And we didn't look at this last time, but in fact, uh, in Job chapter 22, verse 9, Eliphaz wants to accuse Job. If you remember Job, as we've worked our way through that, uh, so Job, by the Lord's own admission, was not in sin. Job was making a, uh, a, a spiritual point. The Lord was using Job as an example to all the unholy angels that someone who'd committed themselves to the Lord wouldn't turn their back and reject the Lord. And so he allowed a lot of things to happen, and he counted Job worthy to go through it. Because he made a point both to those angels who are unholy and to all the world that's read since that time that it's possible to be in the hardest and most difficult of situations and still say the Lord's good. 
And so uh, the problem is, of course, we have four examples of people we don't want to be like. And these are the people who think they know what's going on in everybody's life. And so even though the Lord had said that Job was sinless, there's a bunch of guys who were trying to figure out why Job was the object of God's chastening. And Eliphaz is one of them. And he wanted to tell Job why he was having so many problems. And so he comes and he accuses Job of wickedness. But he really couldn't find any sin. So he makes up a serious sin to try to get Job to realize that all that pain was all the result of sin. And what he says in Job chapter 22 and verse, 29, verse 9, rather, you have sent widows away empty. And of course, it's a sideline. And of course, it's not something that Job had done. But I think it's important that when he's trying to think of the worst thing that a man could possibly do that would qualify him to be under the judgment of God, he says, I'll tell you what you've done, Job. You must have sent widows away without any help or assistance when they needed you. And I think that's important to, to, to take in as we think about uh, God's uh, care and, and how precious they are in the sight of the Lord. That was thought to be a severe sin when a man did not provide for someone who needed help. And, and when Isaiah is reproving the leaders of Israel in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 23, here's what he says to them. And this was true about the leaders of Israel during this time. He says, the widow's plea does not come before them. In other words, even though they are the special object of God's attention, they didn't listen to widows in need. And that's the seriousness of their sin. And this emphasis on the care didn't change with the New Testament. In fact, as we've seen in James chapter 1, verse 27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Two things that were most important to the early church, James says, was to make sure you took care of those who were defenseless, those who didn't have anything, and make sure you didn't get stained along with the world, that you're separate from the world enough that your testimony is intact. And so we could easily say, I think then, and, and in the survey, if you missed any of that, you can go back and catch it up. But those who name the name of Christ, those who name the name of God, identify with him, should see this as an imperative and have the same heart for women and children that he does. And we saw that the early church did make it a priority to care for widows and to care for orphans. But because we're addressing it here in Ephesus, as Timothy is there as the pastor, we realize that some of the things had gotten lost along the way and some discernment had been lost and things had to be straightened out. And how to go about this ministry is something Paul had to tell Timothy. And so Paul instructs Timothy in our section, verses 3 through 15, to really perform an intervention with some really tough directives. And so he says to Timothy and through him to the church, honor widows, he says, who are widows indeed. You're doing the honoring of widows, but the problem is, is that this list has got out of hand. And we saw that was principle number three in relating and leading. Very simply, it's the responsibility of the church to support true widows. And we saw that that word widow is really the whole emphasis of the passage. And that word honor is the verb tomao, present active imperative. So it's a command in the imperative. A command to Timothy to bring it to the church and we're going to see later, to command the church, to direct it, to carry out. And the word's a derivative of a superlative, most precious. So the idea is, fix the value accordingly. So the word has to do with not just protection, and not just respect, but also provision of material things, which goes right along with what we understand he's instructing the church to do, to bring about their support. And then we saw that that word widows is an adjective, but it's used as a noun in the Greek. And we understand the word to mean someone, a woman who's lost her husband. 
So Paul says, who are widows indeed. And so we can tell that the word describes the situation. She is alone. She has suffered the loss of her husband. She has gaps. She's in deficit. It doesn't say anything about how she lost her husband. And in the context of its usage in the first century and now, it can certainly mean a woman who's lost her husband to death. And that's usually our general understanding of it. Just as long as you, don't under, as you understand, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible's just talking about a woman who doesn't have a protector. And certainly in that first century, she could have lost her husband in any fashion. Certainly by death, she could have lost him to divorce. She could have lost him because she was deserted or she was cast off or any number of things. So when we read honor or widows who are widows indeed, we need to understand that she is truly bereft. She's alone, without resources. And we also understand that not every woman is in this situation. She may be a widow without her husband, but she may not be without resources. Maybe her husband left her plenty to live on and she's comfortable. Uh, not every woman is really in that dire of straits. Not every woman also was going to qualify because of life choices or character, which is what we're going to get into as we move further into this section. So Paul's going to help Timothy deal with the situation by giving him, if you will, a measuring rod, a list of qualifications. And I think that's just obvious, right? Anytime you see a type of ministry going on, there's always going to be some regulations. There's always going to be some resources given to help us understand how we're supposed to discharge it. The Lord doesn't give us the option of just doing it however we want to do it, whatever we think is okay. He's in charge of the church. He wrote the letter particularly so we'd know what to do in the church. And so we can take it then as from the Lord that there's some definitions about those who qualify of whom is deserving. Because everybody's going to have their own, right? They're going to come and say, hey, this, this person qualifies. This person's deserving. You know, th this is what it means to be in need. She needs it. And so we can't just leave it subjective like that. It's objective. And he's going to make it very clear. And then he starts in verse 4 making it very objective. Look at verse 4. If any widow, he says, has children or grandchildren... They must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. And so as you come to this first list of regulations and qualifications, what do you have to ascertain if the person's going to be, this widow's going to be on the list? You have to find out if they have any family, whether or not they have any children or grandchildren, because it's the responsibility of the children and the grandchildren to support that widow. So that's what he's saying. He's saying, let them, that's the children and grandchildren, learn first to show their godliness in the family. You know, you say you're godly, then let's see that in your family. And when it says they first learn, that's manthano, present active imperative again. It's a command to children and grandchildren to make some return to their parents. If you really are godly, then this is what you're going to do first. And that was principle number four. As we understand widow care, the family has the first responsibility. So as Paul begins to straighten out what's going on in the church, he says the first thing you need to ask is, is there children and grandchildren? And it's always this way. Family is always the proving ground for godliness. And here, godliness is going to be shown first in your relationship to your parents, how you care for your mother or how you care for your father. It's going to also include how, sisters, how you care for your brothers, brothers, how you care for your sisters. And we're going to see, and we've already seen already in this passage, it's going to move on out to moms, how do you care for your children? Wives, how do you care for your husbands? How do you care for your home? Fathers, how do you care for your children? Husbands, how do you care for your wives? Because home, mark this, beloved, home is always the proving ground for spirituality. 
And you can't always tell in church because people seem spiritual and you won't know until you know what's happening in the family whether or not they are or not, see? Because when you come to church, you can have a persona and people will pretty much take you however you present yourself and give you credit for whatever you, you appear to be. But that's not always how it really is. And as we saw early on, we saw for those who are elders who lead the church, for those who are deacons who, who serve the church, they have to have their families under control. Otherwise, they can't come and do any of that. And so this is just part and parcel of a, a consistent scriptural principles because you can't always tell what's going on. And godliness here, uh, uh, Paul says, is acceptable in the sight of God. In other words, you learn how to take care of your parents. You learn how to take care of your grandparents. That kind of true godliness is acceptable to God. That's one thing you can know for sure. No, not how many Bible studies you're in, not how many small groups you go to, not whatever church ministries you, you discharge. True godliness is first what you do with your responsibility in the home. Because you can be someone like 2 Timothy 3.7 describes, you can be always learning and never coming, able to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's possible then to always be studying the Bible and going to Bible studies but never putting into practice what's being studied. Because remember, spirituality is not how long you've been in the faith. Spirituality is how many times have you asked, what does the Bible say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? And you begin to apply it over the long term. That's godliness over the long term. It's not whether you went to this great seminar or you heard this cool sermon and now you're godly. This is a long-term practice of putting in obedience the things that God has said to work in your life. The, gray hair, the man with gray hair is honored if it comes with holiness, right? Otherwise, you can just be a gray-haired carnal person. It takes time. It's not an instantaneous thing. To be conformed to the image of Christ is hard. It's putting to death the deeds of the flesh. It's taking up your cross and following it. It's losing your life to find it. And so this is the same type of way. It's possible that you could always be studying the Bible, but you're not putting anything into practice, missing the truth, but appearing to be spiritual. And that can be true in a lot of areas, and, and no doubt it is. But in our subject, certainly today it is. Now look at verses 5 and 6. Now, he says, she who is a widow indeed, and then he gives some extra qualification to help us understand what he's talking about, who has been left alone, has fixed her hope on God, and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. Verse 6, but she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Now, he says, she's been left alone, and that just affirms what he said earlier. In other words, she doesn't have any children or grandchildren to take care of her because they're supposed to do it. And that perfect passive of the Greek verb mono, that's alone. That's where we get our, our word for one. You know, so it's happened to her. That's the passive. Something's happened that puts her in a position where she is isolated. She's by herself. It's just her. So that isn't going to change. This is her state of being. So Paul then clarifies then the target audience for ministry. And these requirements are going to exclude many, no doubt. And they'll either not be in poverty because they have some resource or they're going to have family. So neither of them then can be on there. And, and she has, this is another qualifier, fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. And that's principle number five in relating to leading for widow care. She is a believer. 
She appears to be a believer. She's fixed her hope. Again, perfect tense, active voice, indicative mood of El Pizzo. This is the reality of, his, of her life. The reality of her life is she's fixed her hope. She fully trusts with joy and confidence on God. And again, one standard of holiness, right? This is what we're, where we're all supposed to be, isn't it? Precisely where we're all supposed to be, we fix our hope on God. It doesn't matter how much you've insulated yourself, perhaps with your portfolio, and you think you're really insulated from catastrophe. You're not, because the Lord's provided everything that you have. So we fix our hope fully on God and not on what he provides. Not on the provision, but the provider. And that's what she's doing. So she waits for salvation with joy and full confidence. She must be a believer. And beloved, it can be verified not by her saying that she is, but it's partially verified by the continuous obvious trademark of her life. Her hope is on the Lord. And you may not know that at first, but once you get to know her, you're going to know some other indicative habits of a believer. She continues in entreaties and prayers night and day, prosmeno, that is to abide in, in the habit of doing entreaties and prayers. And here again, this woman who is desolate and alone is a believer. Her hope is in the God who is the who has a heart for women in her condition. She trusts him. She makes requests of him. She talks to him all the time. And of course, again, one standard of godliness, right? Uh, pray without ceasing and everything. Give thanks. Be joyful always. I mean, this is, this is the standard for everybody. She's exhibiting that standard. Her settled condition, she's alone and she has no means. Her settled attitude, though, is one of full and complete hope and trust in God. Now look at verse 6. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead, he says, even while she lives. Now this looks like a reiteration. I don't, I don't think it really is. I think it's wise to use it as a principle. It's like looking both ways. You're looking at what she says and what she appears to do. Then it's looking at other things. And that's principle number six. For widow care, she must be godly. Again, we get back to that same principle we looked at before. She actually has to be godly. And that's the clear indication, certainly, of verse 5, that she continues in entreaties night and day, and she's fixed her hope on God. But from the other side, the life has to line up to what she's saying and what she looks like she's doing in the congregation, because there's a lot of this going on today. People who call themselves believers who would indicate they pray and, and would look a certain way when they come to church and say perhaps on their social media, you know, thank God for my answered prayer and whatever. But the life has to add up because it says this. It says, uh, she who gives herself to wanton pleasure, spatalao, that's, that's the word voluptuous. It doesn't mean much to us today, but the idea is perhaps she says she's a believer. She appears to do the kinds of things that believers do, but she lives her life however she wants to live it. And perhaps now, as she's come into this line to be supported by the church, she has spent her money, and this is the idea, on pleasure and sinfulness, and that's been her habit, but now she's desolate. And the question is, what is the established pattern of behavior? Because what you don't want to do as a church is put them on the list and have her take whatever support she needs from the church to live and then begin to just spend it on whatever she wants to spend it on. So the question is, has the character been modeled and molded into Christ's likeness. So Timothy is cautioned to look both ways here as he begins to weed out this list. Now look at verses 7 and 8. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now that word prescribe is a, is a word we've looked at a verb many times, para angelo, Again, that's the word command. 
Timothy has been given commands. And so the Lord, through Paul, says, you've been given commands. You are to pass them on to the church, and they're not to be ignored. This is how it's supposed to be. These are the guidelines Jesus has set up for his bride to function properly in ministry. And then he tells Timothy to commit it to the church so that they may be, I love this, above reproach. And again, a compound adjective, not able to be called out. Literally, it's no handle. There's no handle where somebody could grab it and say, this doesn't line up with biblical principles. You don't act like a Christian. And, and that's, the, that's the word for everybody here. This is the whole church is supposed to be above reproach. And again, one standard of godliness. So those who lead the church as elders, those who lead the church as deacons, they had to be above reproach, not able to be called out. So that example is very clear. And so this woman has to be above reproach. The church has to be above reproach. And is that surprising to us that the Lord wants his bride to be above reproach as they interact in the community? That's not surprising to us at all. So no handle. And so you have to be particular in this ministry. Everything we've looked at so far so that the church maintains a good testimony. One standard of godliness for the church and for those who lead the church and those who minister in the church. Now look at verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, in verse 4, we just read just a moment ago, if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety or godliness in regard to their own family and make some return to their parents. Mark this part again. For this is acceptable in the sight of God. That's the positive side, right? So when we sons and daughters do this, uh, we are only repaying our parents and grandparents. We'll also be living out the fifth commandment, living out our faith. Honor your father and mother, God's top ten. We'll be putting our religion, re- literally our godliness, into practice. And so I think it's easy to say then, as we think about this, we'll not have God's approval without such loving family care. That's what God thinks is right. He's pleased to see that obedience. Now here's the negative side we're reading right now. The negative side of ignoring the family proving ground of doing what you're supposed to do in obedience is in verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his own, he says, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So really, we touched on this last week and we really ended with this. Two things. If you don't provide for your own, there's the first one. That's the widows that are in your network. That's just a general understanding. Someone you know who's in need. A true widow you know of, that's what it means to provide for his own. People he's aware of who meet these standards, the ones uh, we're going to see. And the second thing is if you don't provide for those that qualify in your own biological family. So both of those uh, are part and parcel of those who are not uh, putting, doing the correct family proving ground. If you don't provide for those that qualify for your own family, those you know about, So the first phrase is beyond family. That's family of the church because he specializes it and says, especially of your own family. And he says, if you don't help the ones you're aware of and especially in your own biological family, your own parents, your grandparents, your own aunt or your sister or whatever, someone close to you, if you don't help those along with everyone networked who's in any sense belongs to you understanding a friend or acquaintance, there's two things that are going to go on here. First one is this. He has denied the faith. Now, that doesn't mean that you've personally lost your salvation. That's not possible. He's not judging your soul. What he means is you have obscured the evidence that you are saved. That's the idea. And what evidence is that? And we looked at this last time, 1 John 3, 17. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, 
How does the love of God abide in him? And that's a rhetorical question. And what's the answer? It does not abide in him. If you see someone, a brother or sister in Christ who has need and you have the ability to meet the need and you don't meet it, the love of God does not abide in you. Very, very clear and scary proposition there. Verse 18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. There is always the evidence of love. That's what's being obscured when it says you are ignoring those who are yours and those in your own family. John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you, what, have love one for another. Love is always a verb in the New Testament. It's always action. That's why in 1 John 3, 18, let us not love with word or tongue. That's not true love. Love is in deed and love is in truth. And it's easy to say and it's hard to do. It's easy to take it Take the support and provision that happened through your family to you as you grew up. Hard to pay it back. So the first thing is, when you don't care of, take care of those in your circle, that's the idea. When you don't take care of those in your biological family, number one, you deny the evidence of the faith you claim has changed you. Very, very basic. It doesn't matter what else you're doing. It doesn't matter how many Bible studies you attend. It doesn't matter how many classes you teach. Christian life, beloved, at a basic unit is an act of love towards someone in need. That's the whole point of John 13, 35. They're going to know you're my disciples if you have love one for another. And love is an action. John, John, 1 John 3, 17. You're going to provide for those who have it if you have it to give. That's the basic unit in, in Christianity is the act of love towards someone in need. And the second thing that's going on here, not only are you, are you denying the faith, you're obscuring that you're born again. The second one is that you're worse than an unbeliever. What a terrible, what a terrible accusation. Really, the believer who falls below this really basic standard of loving provision, which is a very basic and heart and foundation of Christianity. It's really shocking because Paul says to Timothy, most unbelievers get this right. Why? Well, because most unbelievers take care of their own. That's the whole point. Most unbelievers almost always get this right. But many pagans, they even revere their elders and they worship their ancestors. They, they figured it out. And if, if they don't get it exactly right, the believer is much more guilty than the unbeliever because of what they know and the commands that they've been given and the love they already possess from the Lord to them. So children and grandchildren and, and men are to provide for widows and for their family in their circle. And we're going to see that women are to do it too from verse 16. Now look at verses 9 and 10. And, and they're just going to come pretty rapidly now. And as I told you, once we set really the, the foundation of the new section, it's not hard to pick out what Paul is trying to say. We just kind of follow the flow. And the, and the passage gives its own outline and it gives us its own understanding. We don't have to manufacture anything, three points in a poem. It's just we follow our way through. We look at what it says, what it means by what it says. Now, how does that apply? And that's what we're doing. Now, look at verses 9 to 10. And, and Paul has helped Timothy to have some general principles. And so he writes in verse 9, he says, he says, a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, if she's brought up children, she's shown hospitality to strangers, if she's washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. And we're going to break this down, but I want to say something really quickly. And, and, and this, I think, as we work our way through, you've been able to pick up on, but I want to point it out here. 
there appears to be a pattern of behavior that's going to be standard for those who are godly. Because it's one standard of godliness. I think you can see that. So to understand if she gets to this point in her life at 60 years old, that had to have been what? Her conduct way back, right? And so can I encourage you, and, I, and, I, and, and because I, I'm very hard on the men when we're together all by ourselves, and I'm very direct with them, what does the Bible say about your conduct and how you're supposed to love your wife and how you're supposed to love your children and your responsibility, and I don't pull any punches. And I'll just say to you ladies this. There's a standard of behavior here that the Lord expects for godliness. Do you understand that? These are the women he thinks is great. And if you're unclear about that, read Proverbs 31. These are the women that God thinks is great. First Peter says, these are the women that had God's approval from of old. What did they look like? They had some basic things that they did. They understood they were supposed to do. We're going to see later that the older women are supposed to teach the younger women to do these things. Could I propose to you this? If you're young, you're single, you're unmarried, and you've got somebody that you're, you're courting, could I tell you, if they're not pushing you this direction and encouraging you and washing you with uh, their words and making you more glorious and more radiant and, and putting you in a position where you can fulfill the godliness God has planned for you as a female, that you dump them? Because God has a whole different plan for you and, and he's got a whole way that you're supposed to act and, and, and the things that you're supposed to do that he thinks is glorious and wonderful. And you're never going to make it there if you're dating some guy who doesn't really care about godliness and spirituality. He's not going to love you like you need to be loved, okay? But there's a pattern of behavior that's going to have to start when you're young. And you're going to have to realize that this is part of what you're supposed to do. And so... Paul gives that snapshot. Now, it's certainly applicable to help us weed down this list in Ephesians about which widows are going to get support. And it helps the modern church do that too. But beyond that, it gives us a model of what godliness looks like as, as a woman. And I love that about that. And there's plenty of passages for men, and we've looked at them. But here, it just happens to have something to do with those who, who are in the church. So let me just give you that for what it's worth. What we have here, really, then as we work our way through, is it applies to our particular situation. It's going to apply to the women that are left after ascertaining the resources that they may have and home support and general godliness and godly habits that we've just looked at, okay? So some have been already weeded out because of those things. And so this list appears to be the list of widows that would be totally supported by the church. We looked at that right from the beginning. It's obvious it's making its way to that, okay? And, and this list of qualifications would likely pair the group of women down to actually those who would qualify as widows indeed. Because that's what we're looking for. Now look at verse 9. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old. Now here's the idea that, that we'd, they would just be very unlikely to remarry. Uh, that's the key idea. It's not that 60 is some magic number. It's just it's likely that once they hit 60, it's unlikely perhaps that they would remarry. Because connected to this list, mark this, is the idea of service. You say, what? I mean, they're going to be supported by the church. They're going to serve in the church. Yes. And, and this is a very, very common understanding in first century, very uncommon understanding. And the whole idea of singleness is very un, not understood in the, in the modern church. So we're going to look at a little bit of this so we can, you can get this, you can get your bearings here as we look at why Paul is saying what he's saying to Timothy. They're going to be supported by the church and they're going to be part of the ministry outreach of the church. And, and that understanding comes as a continuation of singleness teaching that we see elsewhere in the Word of God. Specifically, 
uh, Paul's teaching to the church in Corinth. I'd like you to look, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Turn there, if you would. Now, if you've been with us, you know we went through 1 and 2 Corinthians. And if you'd like some more of the background here, because I'm just going to deal very, very abbreviated way with this. There's much more to this passage, and we took our time with it. It's a very long passage. It deals with a lot of things. But basically, what's happening here is Paul is answering a series of questions as he gets to chapter 7 that were likely delivered to him by Chloe. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11. We won't go back there. But Chloe comes and visits. She brings a list of questions from the church. Paul's not there, and it's a big list. And so it, you can probably imagine it like this. Somebody's talking on a cell phone in your house and all you get to hear is what they're saying back and you can pretty much extrapolate out from that the questions that got asked. It's not difficult and here it's not difficult at all because Paul says, you asked this and here's what I want you to know. And so he says this in verse 32, look there. I want you to be free from concern, he said. So they have some concern about singleness. They have some concern about marriage and all that kind of thing. Paul says, I don't want you to worry one who is unmarried, now let's get some definitions here. When he says one who is unmarried, this is someone who has been married but is no longer married. Okay, that's the definition of unmarried in the New Testament. Is concerned about the things of the Lord and how he may please the Lord. Now, the Bible is written in the masculine, but we're going to see feminine brought in here. But this in general applies to everybody. Concerned about the things of the Lord and how he may please the Lord. Verse 33, but the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world and how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. Now, pause right there. That's just stating facts. There isn't anything wrong with that. In fact, marriage is for most people. God created a helpmate in the garden and gave that helpmate to Adam. Nothing wrong with being married. And when you're married, your interests are divided. You have to take care of your wife and you take care of the things of the Lord and you provide and all that. And that's just facts. And he's not condemning any of that. You'll see that in just a minute. Now, the one who is unmarried... That's been married, but what? No longer married. And the virgin, this is someone who has never been married. Okay? So I think you can understand both of those now. Unmarried is someone who's been married and isn't. A virgin is someone who has never been married. And so the implications there are obvious. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be both holy in body and spirit. So very similar to the man who is unmarried or the man who is a virgin. They're concerned about what? the things of the Lord, and how to be holy both in body and spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world and how she may please her husband. Again, those are just facts. This is how it works in a marriage. If you're, if you're a woman and you're married, you're concerned about how to please your husband. You're concerned about how to run the house. This is pr precisely what it's supposed to be. Paul's not condemning either of those things. In fact, he says this, verse 35, this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Listen, I'm telling you this so that you understand how it works, he says. And, and I'm not trying to restrict you in any way. I'm not saying you should be one or the other. I'm just saying this is how this works. And I want to promote what's appropriate, not what's unappropriate. And to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. We're going to see why he wants to secure undistract, undistracted devotion to the Lord. So this is the norm from Scripture that someone who is no longer married, who has never been married, is what? What are they? They are concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be both holy in body and spirit, that he may be both holy body and spirit. If they're single, they're automatically, it's automatically understood that they're concerned about the things of the Lord. Now, that flies in the face of our culture where if you're single, you do whatever you want. 
That flies in the face of our culture of you just provide for yourself, you just enjoy yourself, and you go out and do whatever you want to do, and you don't care about the church, you don't care about ministry. See, that's foreign to the New Testament for a believer. Okay, understand that. Now, hold that thought, okay? And I'd like you to turn now to Matthew chapter 19, verse 10. Because Paul is giving this direction because Jesus has already taught on marriage and singleness from Matthew chapter 19. Now, this is a passage, if you've been to a wedding that I've conducted, you know that I always teach through this passage to the bride and groom, but mostly to those who are there in attendance. Because this is a very important passage that has to do with marriage and divorce. And we're not going to go through all of that. I'm going to sum up really the first uh, verses 4 through 9 for you. But I'm going to give you the context. In verse 3, it says, Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him, and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now, you understand that the Pharisees were always testing Jesus. They were always calling him to a feast or bringing him somewhere or confronting him somewhere because they wanted to make him look bad. They always wanted to create a situation where he would look conflicted or wouldn't know what answer to give. They never caught, they never caught him out that way, but this was always the case. Because the Pharisees were the legalists. They're the ones that put a fence around the law. They, want, they are the ones that said, if you're really holy, not are you not going to do this. You're not going to do this either. And of course, you know, most of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying, you've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said, but I tell you. And so he's fixing all that stuff that the Pharisees have messed up. But here, they're testing him. And they come and they ask him a question. They want to know what his teaching is in divorce and remarriage. And we've seen how the Pharisees manipulated God's law and accomplished the ends that they wanted. And we've already looked at that even last uh, two weeks ago. They've done the same with marriage. So what Jesus does is pretty interesting. He doesn't take him back to any of the other rabbi teachings. He doesn't teach him back to a little historical lesson in, in earlier in the nation or whatever. He goes all the way back to God and just says, okay, you want to know what, what, uh, whether it's lawful, divorce a wife or not? Yeah, let's see what God intended. And so he sums it up. And here's where I'm going to give you verses 4 through 9 in uh, 20 seconds. First he says, what did God say? He said, one man for one woman, no alternatives. That's what he said. Number two. Marriage is a powerful bond, a joining. The couple has become one. It's not divisible by anything. Number three, what God says is this, I'm the craftsman of marriage, and it doesn't matter what you or anybody else might think about it, because when you get a divorce, you rip, a, you rip apart what I have put together, and that should make you think. And after he's done with all of that, in verses four through nine, the disciples do some thinking, and they come to him. Now pick up in verse 10 there in your open Bible. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. Translated, if you have to marry and you're stuck with that person for the rest of your life, then it's probably better to be single. I mean, that's pretty tough. You can't divorce them. You can't unload them. It doesn't matter what they do, right? Unless there's specific biblical requirements for divorce or allowance for divorce. So if you're stuck, everybody should just remain single. Now, here's the teaching that's pertinent to our point in 1 Timothy chapter 5. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement. Now, here's what he's saying. You get it. You get the fact that when you get married, it's permanent. That's good. So they were right in that respect. What they weren't right about was that it's better to stay single. Because the Lord created marriage for most people. And he said it was good. And he put the husband and wife together. So it's not better. So instead of running away from marriage, you should run to it if the Lord's created you for that. And here's the qualifier. Look at the last part of verse 11. Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it's been given. What does he mean by that? He just means not everybody can say it's better to be single. Only the people the Lord has given that ability to. 
Now he qualifies that. Verse 12. There are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Now, that word eunuch is one we're familiar with. It's literally keeper of the bed in the New Testament. And in ancient times, from which comes our most common understanding, this is a man who has been physically rendered unable by a medical procedure to have an intimate relationship with a woman. And so they were assigned the job of watching over the multiple wives of a monarch. However, that is not the only definition, as you can see, of eunuch in, and other ancient applications can help us understand that better. It can be a word applied to someone who was born naturally incapacitated for marriage or for begetting children. Somebody can be born that way. And then this one, someone who made a eunuch by men, we just talked about, but someone who, marked this, voluntarily abstains from marriage. And that's Jesus' point in the statement when he says, who've made themselves eunuchs or made themselves unmarried for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Do you understand that? That's a gift that the Lord can give to some single people. Marriage is for most people, but the Lord in his sovereignty gives singleness to some. And why are they single, beloved? And you're going to see this singular teaching all the way through the New Testament. This is very, very common. They'll know it's a gift because marriage is for most people, which is why Jesus says not everyone can accept a lifetime of singleness, only those to whom it's been given. And beloved, it's always for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. It's not so you can live your life and do whatever you want, be immoral and all that. It has nothing to do with that. It's the ability to remain single. It's the ability to put off sexual desire. It's the ability to say, I'd be singularly committed to the kingdom. It's just a simpler way of stating 1 Corinthians 7, 34. They're concerned about the things of the Lord that she may be both holy, both in body and in spirit. But the one who's married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And I say this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what's appropriate and secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. And that last part is this. If the Lord's given you the gift of singleness as we see Jesus teaching in, in Matthew chapter 19, then he's teaching them here in 1 Corinthians how to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. And I think this is really great. And so to understand this is really the foundation that underpins all of New Testament teaching on singleness. So here, Paul's giving Timothy instructions to intervene and make sure what's going on by way of a woman who's been left bereft is fitting into the whole of God's plan for singleness, which is always undistracted, what? Devotion to the Lord. It's always that, see. So a widow is put on the list, he says, only if she is not less than 60 years old. And the key idea then would be she's very unlikely to remarry. That's the key idea because connected to all this is the idea of service, of undistracted devotion to the Lord because that's what happens when you're single and the Lord's given you that gift. If you're married, you have divided attention between the marriage and the Lord. Because these widows are going to be supported by the church. They're going to be part of the ministry outreach of the church. And, and they then are the unmarried from 1 Corinthians 7, right? They were married before. They're not married now. They believe the Lord's given them the gift of singleness. 
They are the ones who've made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. That's the same idea. So we can identify that as principle number seven for widow care. Uh, those, those supported by the church understand that singleness is an opportunity to give themselves totally and completely to kingdom work. And beloved, she's old enough to hold that commitment. She understands she was married. She understands what that entailed. And now she's bereft. She doesn't have anyone. And she's committed totally to kingdom work. So Paul says to Timothy that, you know, this woman, first of all, is to be mature enough to as not to seek to remarry so that when she makes a commitment to serve the Lord, the commitment of singleness and says, I have the gift of singleness. I'm going to remain single She's not going to be lured by a man who may lure her and not be constantly beset by the lack of a marriage partner and the intimate relationship that goes along with that. She no longer has a desire for all of that. She wants to use her life to serve the Lord. And that really is just a continuation of a very basic biblical understanding of what singleness is supposed to look like. And then the next qualification for those on the list uh, for women who are truly alone and no family to care for them. And, and so as we understand this one, we move on to this next one. These next seven are going to deal with character and they're going to deal with life choices. It isn't surprising because all who serve in the kingdom, because we know they're going to be serving in any kind of official capacity as they will be, have qualifications. And again, we're going to see later, the older women are instructed to what? Teach the younger how to love their families, how to love their husbands, how to love their children, and keep the home, and all those kinds of things, right? So they're going to have an official capacity in the church to do some really wonderful things because they've already done those things, see? They have a history of faithfully raising godly children. They have a history of loving uh, one husband, all that kind of stuff. One standard of godliness. She models those qualifications for all women. So it says this then, having been the wife of one man, and, and you know this because I called this to your attention back in chapter 3 regarding elders and deacons. It's exactly the same construction, just reversed order. Now, it doesn't mean that she's only been married once because in verse 14, he says, I want younger widows to what? To remarry. She can still qualify as a one-man woman. There's no sin there. 1 Corinthians 7.39, which we just looked at it, all the way down at the end, it says, a widow should remarry again, but only in the Lord. So there's no sin connected to any of that. See? And so it can't mean she can never have been married more than once. What it means is a one-man woman is a woman who is totally devoted to the man she was married to. It's talking about purity of action and purity of attitude. She lived a life of complete fidelity with her husband. She was chaste. She was pure. She had an unspotted marriage relationship. This has to do with the history of the time she was married. You understand? And so this is pretty clear. Purity of action, purity of attitude. She was totally devoted to the man she was married to. She lived in complete fidelity to her husband. She was chaste and pure and unspotted. And this is the same idea when it says uh, for an elder, uh, the husband of one wife, that's a one woman man. It's exactly the same. It doesn't mean other things. It means that they are completely and totally committed uh, in purity of attitude and action to the wife they were married to. And we can identify that as principle number eight for widow care. So those supported by the church who are going to be setting, uh, serving the church is a woman who is mature, a woman who has lived her life in a chaste way, faithful to the husband that she had. So this is a character thing. And if she doesn't qualify here, then she can't be on this list. Now let's look at the next one. We have to stop here. We're out of time. So 
Let's look at the next one. Verse 10 says this, having a reputation for good works. And that is a great, that's a great comment there. And this is, we're going to see is the next ones that come along are, the, are really going to be the qualifiers for what it means to have a reputation for good works. A lot of people think, you know, it's just, I can describe that myself. It's just subjective. I'm, I do good things. I do good work. But the Bible never leaves it up to us to determine what things are good works. And I love that, that we can have a, a list of things that are to be good works. But having a reputation, present passive participle of the verb martureo, it really describes her life. People describe her, that's the passive. So they're giving her this moniker, literally having a reputation for good works. She is well reported for good works. She is to have a reputation. In other words, it's common knowledge, this kind of woman that she is. She has a reputation for, it says good, that's the word kalos. There's a lot of words for good in Greek, but kalos is the one where not only does she do the right thing, but it's beautiful to look at. Right? We've looked at that before. That word kalos is not just, when you go to an art museum, you know, you look at a painting and you say, that's really good. Not only do you mean uh, that they were really talented in doing it, but the whole, as you step back and you take the whole thing, it's just beautiful to look at. That's the idea here. She has a reputation for excellence, an excellent character. And again, that isn't surprising, is it? The elder has to be blameless, unable to be called out. Same with the deacon. They're to be men of quality, one woman, men, their households under control, their children walk in obedience. We're going to see the same thing here as we work through these qualifications for this widow. The elder is to be without reproach, a deacon to be without reproach. The woman on this list is to be a woman without reproach. And we can identify that really as principle number nine as we close. For widow care, those supported by the church on the list serving as a single-minded, single person is a woman who is noted among people for her testimony in the spiritual dimension, unable to be called out. And just like back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, where they're being above reproach, back in 1 Timothy chapter uh, 2, where the women, uh, those who are above reproach, have certain character qualities, here it's very objectively defined. And here's where Paul gives Timothy a measuring rod, if you will, for being above reproach. And it's not an exhaustive list, but we're going to see next time, because it's worthy of a, a close look, that this list is really consistent with biblical teaching and just one standard of holiness, uh, which these widows model for the younger ladies. If she's brought up children, look there, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she's washed the saints' feet, if she's assisted those in distress, if she's devoted herself for every good work. I mean, it's just defines for us what uh, a kind of woman having a reputation for good works is about. And, and we'll look closely at this next time, but you'll also notice that she is good and then she does good. Uh, this is what she must be in order to qualify a righteous, Christ-honoring, God-glorifying woman. And let me just tell you, beloved, these traits don't pass out of style in God's eyes. They don't pass out of style. They're still what God thinks is great. This is still the woman that God can bless. And here later in life, when she has nothing, he's making sure because he loves those who don't have a protector. They're the object of his care. And he's making sure the church is focusing their care on her too. So that's it. I think I've given you enough, a lot to think about. This bow, be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for just the blessing of being together. We're grateful for the time in your word, which is so precious to us. Your word is authoritative. You, you've elevated it equal to your own name. Every single word, none of it will pass away. It's all important. And we don't live by bread alone, but by, Jesus said, every word that proceeds out of your mouth. So, Father, 
these particularly addressed to your church as we're still in the church age uh, find a home where we have to put them to work. So even in the midst of a very specific ministry, which uh, you may or may not give us, we understand the, the broader application of one standard of godliness. We understand the habits of some of these now in their later years who they, they established those habits from long past. And Lord, I pray that um, you'll help us to be just that way. And we thank you too for uh, this season, as Jacob prayed earlier, this great opportunity for us to remember your, your advent, remember the reason why you came and, and, and the sacrifice of your son on the cross and his resurrection to buy our redemption. So we of all people have the most to be thankful for. And we look forward to your return and we want to be, as you've told us, those who serve you doing what you say when you've come and you find us being obedient. Help us to be that kind of person. So Father, whatever it is, perhaps that we thought when we came in, whatever we perhaps thought was most important uh, here, particularly as a woman, a godly woman, help that to be conformed into the image of what your word says. Because that's not man's opinion. That's what you think is important. And Lord, I pray that we'll be that kind of church. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. And all God's people said.